We are in chapter 5 of 1 Timothy today as we come close to the end of the letter. Uh, In terms of the book's structure, I want to remind you that chapters 1, 2, and 3 dealt with a singular issue, really, which was the problem of argumentative people in the church. They obsessed over myths and endless genealogies and speculations that ended up dividing God's people instead of uniting them. Uh, it, was, it was a focus on, on peripheral doctrine instead of a focus on the gospel, on Christ. And last week, we looked at chapter 4, which kind of moved us into a new movement of the book. Uh, and that dealt with the problem of ritualism, which was the term that we were using to describe people who were, uh, who were exercising uh, a religious authority in order to set up a status kind of ladder. Uh, They would forbid marriage, they would prohibit certain kinds of foods um, from being eaten, uh, and they would do this as a way of making church members follow their rituals, as we would call them, in order to to establish who was acceptable to God or who was was, um, gaining rank or status among their congregation in some form or fashion. God didn't prohibit those things. God didn't prohibit marriage. He didn't prohibit eating certain kinds of foods. He had said that all foods are clean. Jesus has said that. Uh, Peter was told that in a vision in Acts chapter 10, etc. And yet these people in the church were doing this uh, as if to turn godliness into something external, into some, some kind of thing that you could measure by whether or not you performed certain actions or avoided certain actions. And, uh, and the whole emphasis of the gospel is that godliness is internal. It's, uh, it's, um, it's something that, that happens on the inside by faith. It's a, re- a reaction to God's mercy, a reaction to God's love and grace. Uh, it's something that, that changes inside, and then evidence is on the outside, but you can't go through the rituals in order to have the internal change. You have to have the internal change, and that would show in the things that you do. Good works is not a means to God. Good works is a result of having God. That's the gospel. Well, today, we look at the issue of a church leader's relationship to various people in the church. The Apostle Paul, who writes this letter, will tell this young pastor, Timothy, uh, he'll tell him how to interact with four categories of people, if you're taking notes, uh, four categories of people. The first will be older and younger men and women. The second will be widows, which we'll also call the needy, widows or the needy, Third is the elders, which we'll also call leaders, elders or leaders or even overseers. You can kind of use any of those terms. And then the fourth is servants, which we'll also use the word workers. And, uh, and we're just kind of contemporizing some of these words because uh, a few of them are related more to things that happened 2,000 years ago. We're updating it a little bit, all right? So we'll take it in those four major movements, and then we'll come to a conclusion on how this chapter is tied into, curiously, chapter 4. How is this talk about uh, the leader's care for these four different categories of people related to the whole ritualism thing? How is it related to, to that whole problem? We, we do need to deal with that question. What relationship, do these, uh, what relationship do these instructions have to do with the previous chapter? What do these have to do with the leader's work ethic or the leader's authority? All that kind of stuff. We'll get to that, but let's start by just looking into how the Apostle Paul says that Pastor Timothy should treat these different types of people. Let's start with the first group in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, to older and younger men and women. This is what it says, verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, 
young, younger women as sisters in all purity. Now, if you uh, just look at that, that, that right there is the end of that section. And the instructions, if you notice, are not to older and younger men and women. The instructions are to Timothy on how to treat older and younger men and women. So it's specific to, uh, to Timothy on, on how he's supposed to treat these, these people. And if you get real into it, it's about how he rebukes their sin, how he confronts them. And if you notice, it says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. And then it borrows those verbs and applies it to all the other people, to uh, younger men, don't rebuke them, but encourage them as brothers. Older women, don't rebuke them, but encourage them as mothers. Uh, younger women, don't rebuke them, but encourage them as sisters. That's what it's doing. It's taking the verbs and applying it to all the different categories of those people there. Uh, this church dealt with problems of uh, heretical teachers, divisive men, unruly women, uh, and yet hear how Paul tells Timothy not to be sharp against them, and yet to be gentle, to, uh, to come in with encouragement. Even though the leaders may have been bad, Timothy is not to, quote, rebuke an older man. Now, you know that rebuking is something that we are supposed to do biblically, right? So the word that the Apostle Paul is using here, and, and the context in which he's using it, is, uh, is more in the sense of verbally attacking or scolding. Don't scold such a person as into uh, to be punitive, to try to punish them. But treat these people as fathers or mothers or brothers and sisters. Those are all what kind of terms? Family. Treat them as family, right? Because the, uh, what is being exposed here is that the church of God is the closest relationship you can have. It's family, and so treat these people respectfully with, with encouragement, right? Instead of, uh, instead of scolding and attacking and, and, and punishing them, come in and encourage them. And that word, uh, encourage, is, uh, is parakaleo, which means come alongside, right? It doesn't mean you're above them to talk down at them. It means come alongside. You're in the fight with them. You're in the same trenches. You're in the same situations. You go through the same kinds of struggles. And so come alongside them and say, I know what it's like to be here. Now let's go forward. Let's move. Let's, uh, let's overcome this together. I am with you. I am alongside you. That's the idea. That word rebuke, epipleso, is a word for striking someone. It's not a gentle word, right? So he's saying don't verbally attack, but come alongside them. Whenever you have to rebuke someone, uh, don't, don't be sharp on them and don't attack them, but come alongside and encourage. Be next to them and say we're, we're in this together. Church leaders... If we, if we take a note from uh, what Paul tells Timothy to do, then we know what we need to do. Church leaders need to know how to display respect, even when they are correcting someone, rebuking someone. That in their rebuke, it ought not to be a verbal attack, but it ought to be coming alongside to, to, uh, to be with them, to overcome them. Look at 2 Timothy 2.24 real quickly. The Apostle Paul says, And the Lord's servant, must, which is a, a leader of the church, a Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. That's, uh, how important is that to know that God grants repentance? 
right? You can get all mad at them and be like, why aren't they fixing the, you know, their, uh, their attitude and stuff? But this is something that God has to do. And so you need to come in, into it prayerfully and you, uh, you need to have your spirit inclined for their good. Not to punish them, but to encourage them, to, uh, to speak supportively, to support, to strengthen, to, uh, to encourage, to heal, to, uh, to cheer for them, to be on their side, right? Not on their side to do evil, but on their side to do better. Now, if you get that much, it's easy to see the theme with how to treat older or younger women. You know, it's, it's with love, it's with care. Right? The, the church leader, Pastor Timothy, should not be looking down at the congregation, not thinking they're subordinates, and so he looks, uh, looks at them as, as smaller people or lesser value. It shouldn't be that, but it should always be with love and care, coming alongside, lifting them up, knowing that they're family. If they're old, don't regard them as out of touch and obsolete. If they're young, don't regard them as ignorant and stupid. If they're men, treat them as men. If they're women, treat them as women and include all the sensibilities and sensitivities that those include for whoever you are. It's interesting that Paul includes this added line about how to treat younger women. He says, as sisters in all purity. And he's, he's saying that to, uh, to Timothy, and, and this applies to all men in leadership, because men in leadership can very easily have ulterior motives on how they treat younger women. Uh, that, you know, that line here is a reminder when confronting younger women about sin, don't use it as an opportunity to flirt or to try to make her owe you something. You know, don't twist a call to holiness and pervert it for your own passion. Uh, don't, don't just be nice because uh, you think she's pretty. Uh, don't just be nice because you want her to like you. These are, these are things that uh, the Apostle Paul is bringing to mind, but he's saying, treat younger sisters in all purity. Like before the Lord, the way in which you, uh, you confront them, you, you have to come and encourage as younger sisters, but don't do it with some other motive in there. Even today, men can feel superior to women if their hearts aren't humble, and every man is, is uh, called to handle young women in all purity, in, in the regard of their hearts, to be very careful about that. So consider how you confront others if you do confront them at all. You should be confronting people when, when they're in sin. Um, you should do it, and you should do it with gentleness. And this is a good time for the church to then consider how your leaders confront church members. Right? Ask yourself whether or not the leadership of your church ridicules its members. Uh, do they use verbal attacks motivated to cause pain? I'm not talking about teasing and camaraderie. I'm not talking about uh, just having a playful relationship. I'm talking about saying things to break someone down hurt them, and then they probably don't want to come back to church. Do your leaders attack people and cause pain, or do they speak firmly, clearly, and yet with love and care? Sadly, sometimes the more important a Christian leader becomes, the less important he thinks his associates and subordinates are. Is there always the invitation from the leader to a member to do correction? Is there always an invitation with joy and warm reception for anyone who returns? Look at your leadership. See how they regard members. See how they correct members. See how they engage with people that need to be confronted. Well, look at the second group of people. That's uh, widows, the widows and the needy. We'll just read verse 3 for a second. It says, honor widows who are truly widows. Honor widows who are truly widows. Now, this is the main idea of verses 3 all the way through 16. Uh, it's to honor widows. 
That by itself is an opposite principle of that society which marginalized widows. Widows were not treated well uh, back in, in, the, in the time that this was written. So to say honor widows was, was countercultural. Take uh, people who have no income and no status, who have lost uh, their husband, which was attached to, uh, to their whole uh, rank in society, and honor them. Right? They're in need, and so take care of them. Widows oftentimes had no income if, uh, since their husbands were the workers of the family. Older widows rarely remarried since uh, they probably already had children. And, you know, when men want to marry, they want to marry uh, to have their own children, not to adopt some deceased man's children, and uh, he wants to have his own. So widows oftentimes ended up being poor beggars, which made it even more difficult to get married uh, to a man with a promising future. And so you either had widows who were poor beggars or you had widows who, when their husband passed away, they just, they just had this large estate that their husband left behind and they, they owned it now. So sometimes there were rich widows, but very often you had poor uh, beggar widows. At first glance, it seems obvious who's a widow, right? A widow just seems to be uh, a woman who lost her husband. And then here's Paul saying, honor widows who are truly widows, and it doesn't mean, uh, you know, women who have really lost their husband to death. It doesn't mean that. It's, you know, it, when we're talking about truly widows, he's saying really a woman that's in need. A widow that's in need. That's what he's talking about. If a woman's husband died, she's a widow. She shouldn't, um, she shouldn't have to, to be, uh, uh, she shouldn't, shouldn't have to be worried about whether or not she's going to be able to live. Right? The church should take care of those that, that need help. That's what uh, Paul's going to get at. But uh, he's, uh, he is separating certain things here. He's going he's to make um, small distinctions. And um, it's, it, this is a loose form of church membership in the first century where there were lists of people that were enrolled as part of a local congregation and stuff like that. He's going he's to mention this. And he's going to talk about how widows get enrolled into the church and they, you know, they're written down on a list and stuff. And you distinguish between those who are faithful believers and those who just are, uh, are trying to get free money to benefit off charity. So he, uh, he's going get, to get into all this because uh, supporting someone is very expensive, right? For a church, which oftentimes met in a living room, and it would be like a maximum maybe 20, 30 people, uh, it'd be very difficult to take on lots of widows to then support. Where would all that money come from? Where would all, you know, I mean, how much offering is, is brought in to support how many people uh, for all their, their uh, daily living needs? That'd be very difficult to do. And so there has to be some way to discern and decide where support should go, how to feed and clothe and supply uh, the, the needy in the church. And so several questions had to be sorted out here since it was a growing issue in this church in Ephesus where Timothy was pastoring. Uh, you know, which, which widows were truly in need? Uh, what's the responsibility of family members and other relatives of that widow? Uh, how can the church determine which widows qualify for inclusion on their list? And how should the church deal with women who do not qualify for the list? So here, here's where it talks about all that in verse 4 all the way through 16. We're going we're gonna to handle it all right at once. It says, verse 4, But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Meaning, her children should take care of her. Verse 5, she who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day 
But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. So he's making a distinction between believing widows and then worldly widows or self-indulgent widows, right? Uh, And he's saying uh, the one that's truly a widow, the one that really needs support from the church is the one that's left all alone and is faithful to the Lord, particularly in prayer. Verse 7, command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Verse 9, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows." All right, well, the idea of church supporting widows isn't just monetary support. It means that, uh, it means that the, the widow remains unmarried and basically becomes like a full-time a worker or supporter for church, particularly in prayer. So the church not only helps supply for her needs, but also gives her something that she's supposed to do, uh, employs her in a sense. Uh, she's supposed to be part of the ministry. She's supposed to be a, a vibrant contribution in praying for the ministry, for instance. She wouldn't be trying to remarry in the uh, way that uh, the Apostle Paul is describing this. Um, and uh, and she, this is someone who doesn't have children that she could live comfortably off of. She's truly in need, and she's going to be part of the ministry. That person should be taken care of, right? Not just, oh, this person has financial needs, and so start throwing money at them, but but there's a return for it. She will be part of the ministry. She'll be working in the ministry in, in some form or fashion. Um, these women would then, uh, in, this, in this society, they would uh, promise to the Lord to faithfully serve the church and to live off of its provision. And so their, their vow would be to remain unmarried and to, uh, to be faithful in ministry. And, uh, and so if they, if they broke that vow and decided they want to go and remarry, then they were unfaithful to their former faith. That's the way that Paul says it. So he's like, young widows, they might be like, oh, I, you know, I can't believe this happened. I, I want to be supported by the church. I want to be a full-time widow that, uh, that ministers in the church. And so the church could take them on, but then uh, you know, they, they meet someone, and they go, I want to get married. And then they break that vow that they make to God. And so, uh, so Paul says, don't take on the younger widows. They can remarry. Let them remarry. The older ones who don't have that option, the ones who really are left alone, and uh, can't provide for themselves, and are faithful in prayer, and are, uh, are no, uh, devoted to good works, and all that kind of stuff, has, has served the church, washed the feet of the saints, has been proven and tested, take this person on. And it seems to be a, a very unique role for women in the church that were in need. Uh, they would come in, and they'd be a, a very important, uh, helpful part of the ministry. The very simple breakdown on how to determine who the church should support is relevant today still. Right? It, it goes like this. Does this person need support? 
does this person need support if uh, he or she has money from, from the deceased husband? Right? Because if she inherited a lot, then uh, the church doesn't need to support her. Uh, does she have faith? Is she self-indulgent for worldly pleasure or uh, is she faithful and prayerful? If she's, if she's uh, after worldly pleasure, after worldly treasure, don't support her. Let her go after the things that she wants. But if she's, uh, if she's faithful to the Lord, then take care of her and put her to work for the, for the Lord because she does a good work. And then, of course, uh, her relatives have to offer uh, support. If, if your family doesn't take care of you, if you don't take care of your family, the way that Paul says it, if you don't take care of your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. This is a harsh thing to say. And yet it's, uh, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. If you don't take care of your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. Now, it's, it's interesting for our church in, in specific, by the way. Uh, in, this, in this specific time, for our church, most of us are early in marriage, right? Um, some of you have recently gotten married. Um, several of you are engaged some of you are, uh, are raising young children, and you have the mindset of building income and property. You know, that's kind of the, the drive. You, you, you're still trying to build, and uh, that's, that's more the mindset than, than the mindset of sharing. It's, it's more, uh, we need to build, save up, get this thing, you know. And, uh, and during that time, especially during that time, it's very difficult to give money to in-laws or to help, your, uh, you know, to help someone in need. Uh, when, you're, when you're thinking, I'm trying to build my own kingdom, I'm trying to build my castle, uh, save up for a house, save up for a car, save up for, for uh, my kid's education, whatever. When you're doing that, it, it becomes a burden in your mind to, uh, to support your parents or to support your, your in-laws. And yet here's God saying it's a virtue. Like this is where he sees real godliness, right? When you see uh, an in-law that's really in need, then take care of him. If you don't take care of your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. But, but uh, you know, flip that around. If you do take care of your family, there's something very good about that. If you read verses like uh, verse 4 and, and uh, verse 8, um, remember that God sees you providing for your relatives, right? He, he sees you providing for your relatives and he commends that. So there's this call for church leaders that they ought to have a burden to take care of those who are truly in need. Now, not just because they need money, but because they're truly in need and they are a vibrant contribution to ministry. They love the Lord. They're after the things of heaven. They, uh, they, they serve Jesus Christ. They worship Jesus. He is supreme in this person's life and is in need. And so the church should be burdened to say, hey, let's, let's, let's take care of this person, make sure this person doesn't struggle. But if it's just someone who's in financial need and they're, they're, not, uh, they're not following Christ, they're not, uh, they're not given to him, the church shouldn't uh, feel like, it shouldn't be guilted into, oh, our money should go in that direction. Your money goes to the Lord. So give it to the people who serve the Lord. Give it to the, the people who are faithful to the Lord. All right, third group, elders and leaders, right? Elders, overseers, leaders. Paul is about to tell Timothy how to treat the elders of the church. An elder really just, it just means old person, old man. Um, it can also be translated overseer uh, or leader, however you want to put it. And, and uh, we use the word overseer at this church because we don't feel like we're that old. And so overseer seems to be a better fit. And uh, the Apostle Paul is going to give uh, different kinds of instructions. First, he's going to say to honor this, uh, the, the elder. Then he's going to talk about accountability for the elder. Then he's going to give some general commands. So let's look at the honor thing, right? Verse 17. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. 
For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now, these two verses are the best verses in the Bible. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. I was joking, just to be clear. Okay? Let them be worthy of double honor. Um, don't muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain. Meaning, don't prevent it from being able to eat while it's working. The laborer deserves his wages. So, double honor, he says. Give double honor to the elder or the overseer or the leader who does well. All right? what, what does double honor mean? What, what, what does just honor? What does he mean by honor? Right? And how do you double that? Right? Don't, uh, honor, what does it mean? Does it mean respect? Give him respect? Does it mean remuneration? Payment? Salary? So give him salary? Give him, uh, give him a paycheck? Or does it mean both? Does it mean give him respect and give him payment? Which one does it mean? Well, some would say that it seems like it means honor since that was a more deeply valued reward in Timothy's society. Honor was a better currency. That was a more important currency. It was more important to people to be honored and respected and admired than it was to be rich and, and wealthy. So if, if that's what it means, if it means to uh, give double honor to, uh, uh, to the elder and it, uh, that honor means respect, that if it means give double respect, I mean, don't slander. Don't slander your leaders. Don't mock or ridicule them. Uh, don't hold them in low esteem, but instead regard them highly. Speak well of them. What if it doesn't mean respect, right? What if it means payment? What if it means payment? It seems like it could mean payment since the Apostle Paul does mention this in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, where he's, I, I, I think I, I can put it up, uh, chapter 9, verse 14. He says, in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel right? Preachers should be paid. Those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. He says that's the way it ought to be so that they could focus on the preaching and teaching and they, they don't have to have their, their uh, attention divided. In that chapter, the Apostle Paul also quotes Deuteronomy 25.4, that whole thing about muzzling the ox while it treads out the grain, that whole thing. So he uses the same quote and so he seems to be applying that to the idea of payment. It, he certainly is in 1 Corinthians 9. So it seems like he might be using the same context here in 1 Timothy 5. Uh, the the uh, leader of the church, or the, the preacher, shouldn't struggle financially. He shouldn't need second income in order to live. His work should be rewarded. But that's kind of crazy because uh, if it's, if, when he says give double honor to the, uh, to the elder of the church, does that mean give him double paycheck? What does it mean? What does it mean to give double honor? I think it means both. I think it means respect and payment. I think it means that. I think you, you can't get away from the payment thing because uh, that's exactly what Paul says in First, uh, First Corinthians 9, that he should make a living off the gospel. That doesn't mean he should, he should make a living like, uh, like a professional athlete. I don't think he should be buying private jets. I don't think he should be doing any of that. I think he should, just, he should be able to live like the people live. Just make a regular income. Right? And if he does well, okay, double honor. If you want to give him a raise or something, that's up to, that's up to the church, right? It's up to the, the other leaders of the church, however the finances are handled in the church, all that kind of stuff. But when he rules well, it, uh, does it mean honor or does it mean payment? I think it means both. I'm sorry, does it mean respect or payment? It means both. I think it, that's the double honor. Give him respect and, and, and give him remuneration. 
just take care of him. Make sure that, uh, that your leaders are taken care of because you don't want to pay him and then start slandering him. Right? You ought to, you ought to respect your elders. You ought to, that's, just, that's just normal decency, right? You ought to uh, have respect for those in authority. And then you ought to provide for their needs. The church should provide for their needs. If they're going to do that for widows who are in need, they certainly ought to do that for people who are devoting their, uh, their life to edifying and building up the church by the teaching of the word of God, by preaching the gospel. All right, so it seems to me that uh, double honor means uh, re- respect and payment. Accountability, then. He gets the accountability in verse 19 and 20. He says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Now, this is a protection for the leader here. Accusations made against a leader have to be corroborated with other witnesses or other evidence. Right? That protects the leader from being attacked by individuals who are trying to tear him down. Uh, someone who has just a, an agenda against this particular leader you know, brings up an accusation. If it's not corroborated by, by at least another witness, uh, if it's not... If it's not you know, if it's not supported by evidence in some way, then, uh, then don't even entertain that because uh, a leader's reputation falls even when he's falsely accused, right? I mean, it, just the fact that accusations get thrown out at someone, immediately people who hear an accusation assume guilt oftentimes. And so this is a protection against sabotaging church leaders. And that's a good protection to have in place. But the leader is not above... Uh, above accusation. He, he, it's, he's not so protected that he can't be corrected. So there's this other accountability measure that's brought in. The first accountability measure was really against the church. It's accountability to make sure that, uh, that not just anyone would come up and attack an elder and everyone has to then drag this elder to court or something. It, it, there has to be evidence. There has to be reason, a substantial reason to, uh, to bring the, the elder under inspection for that. Now, the, the other part then goes uh, in favor of, uh, of making sure that elders aren't messing around and, uh, and damaging the church. So it says, um, if an elder persists in sin, meaning he's, he's either refusing correction or he, he's pretending to accept it, but he's not uh, correcting. Uh, if, he, if he persists in sin, then publicly rebuke him. And it says, publicly rebuke him in the presence of all, which I think is, is great. That's, that's a, a very important idea. It means that when an elder is proven to be guilty of an accusation and has been called to correction but will not or does not change course, then the church has to be more committed to Jesus than it is to its pastors or its elders or its overseers or its deacons or its directors or its department heads or its committee leaders or whatever structure of leadership they call it. The church must be committed to Jesus more than its pastor, more than its overseer. And so if a leader is called to correction but will not be an example of godliness to the church, he is to be publicly rebuked, which probably means publicly removed. And uh, that's done in the presence of all so that the entire church knows that there's a commitment to holiness, to Jesus, more than its human leaders. 
And by doing that, they, they, uh, they rebuke the leader in the presence of all, and the entire congregation then knows exactly where its values are. Not only that, but the, it, it says uh, not just uh, rebuke him in the presence of all, but it says, so that the rest may stand in fear. Who are the rest? Who are the rest? Does that mean the rest of the congregation stands in fear? I don't think so. When you see, an, uh, when you see a leader publicly rebuked and publicly removed, I don't think you stand in fear, but I do think all the other leaders would stand in fear and say, I need to make sure that I am living right before the Lord, or else that could happen to me. Because remember, honor and respect was more important than money in that society. And so to be shamed publicly like that, to be embarrassed like that in front of the congregation, that was a, uh, that was a dreadful thought. And so the rest of the leaders then would see that even the leadership of the church is held accountable to the word of the Lord. And they would stand in fear and they would say, I must submit to the, the authority of Jesus, not my own. Then some, uh, some general commands come out in verse 21 through 25. It says, in the presence of God and of, of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. That verse comes out of nowhere. Verse 24, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Now, it's, uh, it's just kind of a mixture of, you know, a collection of different thoughts, but Paul calls the church to be absolutely committed to properly honoring and protecting and discipling and removing a leader when necessary. He charges Timothy in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, meaning holy angels or, or uh, uh, angels in heaven, rather than fallen angels, which are demons. But he says you should be very, very, very sure who you put in leadership, particularly as elders or overseers or pastors. You should be very, very sure that this person is right for this position. If you put an unqualified leader into a position of, uh, of authority, you now have to honor this person, protect this person. You have to respect this person when he's not an example to the flock. Then when you find out, when you discover that he's unqualified, you have to publicly rebuke him and publicly remove him. And if you got to do that once, fine. Church might have to do that. And every once in a while, maybe someone, uh, someone gets through the filter. But if, you, if a church has to do that several times, if several of its leaders have to be removed because of, of some kind of moral failure, then, then people start to doubt your church. Or worse, they start to doubt Jesus after they see so many church leaders fall, you know, fail and fail and fail time and time again. It makes people go, what's the point of all this? Even the pastors or even the leaders, they, they don't even live out the stuff that they're telling us to do. What, how is there any truth to this at all? Hypocrisy is the, is the, the main deterrent for people to, uh, to believe in Jesus. They look at the church, they see hypocrites. And when you see it in the leadership, how much more pronounced it is. So don't be hasty in the laying on of hands, 
which was how the, they would officially inaugurate and install someone, you know, a, a, a display, a physical display. They put their hand on someone and say, I affirm that this person is fit to lead our church. Don't inaugurate a new leader without being very sure he's qualified. Even if Timothy doesn't do the inaugurating, Paul is saying don't just passively let someone be put in charge without thorough consideration. Make sure that there was a good process of making sure. Right? That kind of neglect uh, where, uh, where you just go, oh, we'll, just, we'll hire someone. And you, you, you know, someone shows up, applies for the job, and you're like, we need someone. And he seems like he, he came in. And you're like, oh, God must be providing. And if you don't do the, the, you know, your due diligence to, uh, to screen this person, find him out, sit him down in an interview, and say, what are your weaknesses in ministry? You know, if, uh, if you don't do that, then that kind of neglect is sinful. And by letting it happen, if, it, if you as a leader of the church just let some guy get hired or, or uh, put on leadership and you, you, weren't, you weren't making sure that that inspection was taking place, you take part in his sin, right? If, if you put someone in who's dishonest or someone who's violent, if you put a violent man into leadership, the damage he does now is partly on you for letting him be there. So when you install a leader by laying hands on him and saying, this is the right person for the job to lead God's people, to lead our church, you are now stating your approval and your endorsement of how he leads. If you know he's sinful and you put him in leadership, if you know he's not an example of godliness and faith, and you put him in leadership, you take part in his sin. So the church leaders have to thoroughly examine and consider who is to be put in leadership very, very carefully. Nothing should be done hastily or by compromising principles or cutting corners, ignoring problematic issues, etc. By being careful about installing the right leadership, Timothy keeps himself pure. That's, that's part of his call before God. Right? The leadership process, the, uh, the step into leadership should be something that is, uh, is not rushed and is extremely thorough. It should be a rigorous exercise to vet out those who are going to fizzle out later in ministry. It should be a very careful process. Now, Timothy was very careful about staying pure before the Lord, which is, uh, you know, the Apostle Paul says, uh, Make sure you don't take part in, in uh, some other leader's sin by installing an unqualified leader. Keep yourself pure. And it's almost like when he goes, keep yourself pure, uh, the Apostle Paul tangents off into some other thing. He's like, speaking of keeping yourself pure, and I think the reason why he does this is because Timothy, trying to live above reproach and trying to keep himself pure, he wouldn't drink wine. He would only drink water, which was weird back in that day because drinking water was not very sanitary. Uh, usually it was wine because that, that kind of actually, like, uh, was safer. Uh, it, uh, wine, oinos, was unfermented grape juice diluted with water. It was not like the wine we have today, right? You could get drunk off of it if you drink a lot of it, if you're addicted to much wine. But uh, like if you had a glass or two, you wouldn't get buzzed. You know, Welch's grape juice is, uh, is like the equivalent concentration. Um, the, the Apostle Paul says, take a, little, uh, take a little wine for your stomach, you know, your, your, your health issues and stuff. Don't just drink water. And he does that because um, Timothy seems to have been only drinking water. And this is to uh, pr- protect his reputation. It's a little tangent here, and I think that's fine. 
Uh, I relate to it. I don't drink alcohol. Um, I'd like to say it's because I want to protect my reputation. I don't want to stumble anyone. But really, it's just because I think it's gross. Tastes like gasoline to me. So I don't like it. But uh, I, I, I relate to Timothy, why he doesn't drink wine. I, I get what he's doing there. But Paul's like, it's okay to drink wine. It's okay. Right? If God made something, you can receive it with thanksgiving. Uh, it's okay to do it responsibly, to do it wisely. You still got to use discernment. You know? It's okay to eat French fries too, but it's not okay to eat French fries only. Right? So you can use some wisdom. You can use some regular common sense. So that's a little tangent verse. Anyway, he comes back and he says, be careful in selecting leadership. And he points out, some candidates will be obvious in, uh, in their sin or obvious in their good works. Right? Sometimes it, it, you can just totally see it and their sin comes out and it, you'll see it before they go and face the Lord. You know, after they die and then they stand in judgment. Like, you know, sometimes sin is so obvious you'll catch it. Sometimes good works is so, uh, is so, so obvious, so conspicuous, so visible that you'll catch it, you'll see it. And then there are some sins that they'll, you'll find out about it later after the, the leader's gone. Or there are some good works that you won't even notice until much later or maybe not until you're in heaven. Either way, he says like, you know, some candidates are obvious, some are not. So you still have to be careful. It's, it's hard to tell. And so you got to make sure that you filter things very, very well. Uh, and then, of course, after you've done your best, you should also sit back and know that God knows perfectly whether or not this leader is qualified and will judge them perfectly and handle them uh, appropriately when it comes time. All right, well, that's how uh, Timothy is instructed to treat the the elders or the leaders of the church. And then we get to these last two verses, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, on how to treat servants. Another word for that would be slaves, or as we'll use it, workers. Uh, Chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters, meaning Christian masters, must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. Well, uh, servants can be translated as slaves, right? But it's not like slavery in American history. Uh, It's more like indentured servitude. Uh, And the instructions that Paul gives to people at the bottom of the social ladder, people at the bottom of of society's ranks, uh, he says that, that uh, bond servants or uh, slaves, indentured servants, ought to be respectful to their masters. And that, that means don't, don't trash talk them. It, it, so, it, but it's not just refraining from being disrespectful. It means you have to actively give respect, to actively speak supportively, to actively speak in a strengthening manner. In an encouraging manner, an affirming manner, a supportive manner, right? Because the more you talk like that, the more you commit to thinking like that. When you talk about a, a person a certain way, you just start to commit to thinking about that person, regarding them a certain way. So when you train yourself to speak well of people, you commit yourself to, to thinking well of people. And uh, what's interesting to me is that um, this doesn't say, Timothy, this is how you are to treat servants, He doesn't say that. He says, Timothy, this is how servants ought to treat their bosses, their employers, right? Their their masters. The other sections were to Timothy on how Timothy should treat older or younger people, how Timothy should treat widows and the needy, how Timothy should treat 
elders and leaders. But this section is not how Timothy should treat slaves and servants. This is how he should tell them, teach them, urge them to live. And how is he supposed to do that? How is he supposed to teach and urge them? It's the same way he's supposed to teach and urge anyone in the church. By being an example. By saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ. If you're following the pattern here, a church leader is supposed to teach by living it out. Not just by verbal instruction, not just do as I say, but do as I do. The leader has to be dignified and respectable. Those are words we've seen before in chapter 3. He has to be dignified and respectable, worthy of respect and able to show it. To be exemplary at showing it. And by his example, the church is to learn how to live. Well, let's, let's uh, land the plane here. Right? Let's take all this stuff. We've got all these different relationships, different, different ways that, uh, that the leader is supposed to care for all these types of people in the church. How the leader should care for older people and younger people. How the leader should care for widows and the needy. How the leader should care for other leaders. How the leader should care for, uh, for servants. The, the, the bottom of, uh, of the ladder. How does this all tie in to the rest of the book? What does this have to do with chapter 4, which was about, uh, you know, the whole ritualistic church, right? The, um, that whole issue. If you remember chapter 4, that's where leaders were forbidding marriage and uh, prohibiting uh, their members from eating certain kinds of foods. And they were doing that to set up this kind of status, to set up the spiritual standing before the Lord. Say, if you follow my rules, then you'll, uh, then you'll have certain standing before the Lord. Then God will love you this much, or you'll have this many points in heaven. However there, you can uh, try to phrase it, right? And this is a theological problem in terms of how they viewed good works. Good works are not a means to God. Good works ought to be a reaction to what God has already done for you. But practically speaking, ritualism was a problem of authority, it was a problem of authority. It's where certain leaders were making laws, making commandments that, uh, that weren't sourced from God's word. They were just making this stuff up. The leader was saying, do what I say, rather than saying, do what God says. They were turning the church into an institution that would follow my leadership instead of follow Jesus' leadership. That problem was an issue of authority where the leader is exalting himself, not the Lord, and having you follow his authority, not God's authority. The leader's authority should be to point you to God's authority, to Jesus' authority. That's what needs to happen. But when a leader starts to point the church to his own authority, a leader like that doesn't care for God's people the way that God does. That leader cares only for those who follow himself, right? The leader that's out there is forbidding marriage and, and, uh, and prohibiting certain kinds of foods and stuff, who are the people he's going to care about? The ones that buy into his little system, that's, that, spawn, you know, that, that, that jump in and, and, and say, like, we support you and we, we like what you're saying and we, we adopt your teachings and we're going to do your rituals. And he goes, aha, you, you're the good people. You're the ones withstanding. And he cares for those people and not the others. And so there's, uh, there's this thing that comes in where the Apostle Paul says, look, this is how you're supposed to treat the church. No matter who they are, whether or not they subscribe to your authority, you should be an example of, of encouraging, coming alongside, 
of honoring, of respecting, of lifting up, of living by example. Not throwing out authority and saying, do as I say, but to come alongside them and say, do as I do. Look, look how I'm doing. I'm with you now. I, I've, I go through the same struggles you do. Now let's walk together in this. This is what will prevent spiritual abuse from happening in the church. There's no abuse of authority here. What do you see instead? What do you see from, from a godly church leader? A godly church leader loves people and respects them even when he's confronting them for their sin. A godly church leader makes sure that those who are in need are taken care of and he distinguishes the faithful from the indulgent. Right? He, he's, 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 not, he's not a pushover and he's not a doormat. He doesn't just start giving out money indiscriminately and stuff. But he knows that those who are faithful to the Lord and in need should be supported by the church. And he wisely handles the resources. The godly church leader treats other leaders with double honor. Now, do you realize this? This is about how a leader treats other leaders. Certainly, the church should learn from that example. A leader who sees other leaders as enemies or competition or rivals or threats, when there's some kind of ego contest, that guy shouldn't be in leadership. A leader should support other leaders, know that we're all on the same side. We're, we're fighting for the same kingdom. We serve the same Lord, and all of us are servants. These leaders are given respect, and they give respect back. Right? Good church leaders, they're, they're, uh, they're taken care of by the church. They're respected by the church. They rule well. They teach the word. The godly church leader is involved in finding and discerning other people who will help lead the church, and he makes sure that they're qualified. He's on the lookout to see who else can help lead the church, and he makes sure that he doesn't hastily put someone else in there. The godly church leader teaches and urges the members of the church to be careful not to be disrespectful, but instead to actively work to give respect, supporting and affirming and encouraging and strengthening with helpful words. Right? Not damaging, not demeaning, not demoralizing others. And he accomplishes all of this by the example of his life. Right? That's, that's the opposite of this authority figure that says you have to do the things that I say. The stuff that God didn't tell you to do, but I'm telling you to do. You have to do it because I said so. He doesn't do that. This is what godly leadership looks like. It doesn't, it doesn't lead by making rules and rituals in order to gain status in order to have standing. It just takes everyone who's in the church, even those who are at the bottom of the ladder, and says, I come alongside you. I'm with you in this. We are together. There is no vertical difference in our standing before the Lord. The godly church leader leads by loving the Lord, caring for God's people, teaching the word, urging everyone to live like that. Such a man is not concerned with his status. His status is clear. His status is that he's a sinner who fell short until God saved him by sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross. That leader knows that he's no better than anyone else in the church, and it's his undeserved privilege to help point everybody to Christ. Because at the foot of the cross, nobody has standing. All you can do is kneel. Praise God if your church has godly leadership. 
Praise God if you can say that your leadership is not self-indulgent for its own authority and power and pride. Praise God if you have leaders you can imitate who demonstrate for you a life of love and care and humility and respect for one another, for you, for the Lord. That's precisely the kind of man Jesus is. That's the way your leaders should be because that's the way that you, how the church should be. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. God, it's a heavy calling to know that that our hearts are examined by you and that the church is to discern not from the accomplishments of a leader, but from the attitude, from the motives, from the true values and principles and virtues of a leader, whether or not he's qualified. It is not about how much theology he can spout. And it is not about how good he is at talking or administrating or counseling. It is not that. Those are basic, basic requirements. But really what it comes down to, Lord, is whether or not this person understands that he is a sinner who's been saved by grace, by the blood of Jesus. And so is everyone else in the church. And so it's his undeserved privilege to come and to point them to Christ, to point them to the cross. That does not have any room for extra rituals. It has no room for personal authority. It is just teaching and urging people to live like Jesus lived. That's what we pray for our church, Lord. That's what we pray for our leadership. That's what we pray for our entire membership. That all of us would would know to live like that in such a way that we care for older people, younger people, even when we're confronting their sin, that we're respectful and we come alongside them. That we care about the needy, that we honor them, even when they have no status. That we care about our leaders, we respect them and we, we provide for them. That we care about even the bottom of society. Lord, we pray that this would be a, the, the kind of description that fits our church. That we would be that kind of people. Help us, Lord, to adopt that because that's who you are. That's how Jesus is, and so that's how we want to be. Bless us with more leaders. Bless us with people who will grow into this. We know it takes time. We know it takes testing. We know it takes a lot of trying, even failing, and then being corrected and learning and then growing. And we pray that that process would continue as we disciple one another. And what comes out of it, Lord, is a godly leadership because we want godly membership. We want a godly church because we want to keep the gospel central and Christ supreme. Be glorified in this way, Lord. We pray all this for Christ's glory in his name. Amen.